Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au We're in the section of the Old Testament, which is known as the former prophets, which contains a four-part meta-narrative, which contains the book of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And the former prophets retells the story of the history of the Israelites entering into the promised land of Yahweh's Yahweh's temple being built in Jerusalem. And it ends with the Israelites being exiled from the land. And the book of Joshua is part one of this story with the Israelites entering into the promised land. And over the past few sessions, we explored in Joshua chapter one, Joshua is appointed the successor of Moses. And as Moses' successor, Joshua needs to be strong and courageous. That's not strength and courage on the battlefield. He needs to have the strength and courage to be obedient to the Torah of Yahweh and all of Yahweh's commands. In Joshua 2, we looked at how Joshua sent in two spies into the city of Jericho. And our expectation is, as the reader, the first Canaanite that we are going to meet would fulfill the ideal of a wicked, depraved individual. Instead, the spies encounter Rahab the prostitute, a Yahweh-fearing individual who protects the spies and declares her allegiance to the God of Israel and is saved. Chapter 2 challenges our idea of who is a true Israelite. It's not those who are ethnically Israelite, but those who are obedient. And last time in Joshua 3, 4, and 5, we looked at the crossing of the Jordan River, how during the peak season when the Jordan was flooding, Yahweh parted the Jordan River with the Ark of the Covenant being carried by the priests, entering the waters, miraculously drying the riverbed so the entire nation can cross unimpeded. And now the conquest has begun. And the very first obstacle the Israelites encounter is the fortified city of Jericho. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28, Moses recounts the terror the wilderness generation had over the fact that the Canaanites were not only taller and stronger as a people, but that they lived in cities whose walls reached up into the heavens. Jericho represents everything that unfaithful wilderness generation feared. And like the Jordan crossing, the central focus on Jericho's fall is the Ark of the Covenant, Yahweh's earthly throne, which is carried by the priest. And with the Ark in the midst, with Yahweh's presence in the midst of the Israelites, victory is assured. The conquest of Jericho and its destruction has nothing to do with the Israelites. It has everything to do with Yahweh. As you heard the scripture being read, you've probably noticed that there is one word that seems to repeat throughout. It is the number seven. 
The Israelites march around the city for seven days. It's on the seventh day. They march around seven times. There are seven priests holding seven trumpets. Now, if the number seven represents perfection and completion, then Jericho's fall symbolizes the completeness of Yahweh's victory. Also, this seventh day march around Jericho eludes back to creation. Canaan is the new Eden. And unlike Adam and Eve, who were barred from entering into Eden's presence by that angel holding that sword, when Joshua encounters the angel, his presence is threatening. But he does not prevent Joshua from entering. Access to the new Eden, Canaan, means the Israelites can recapture what was lost with the fall, and they can have Yahweh dwelling in their midst. And as the Israelites continue to head into the land, they are heading in a westward direction, the reverse of the curse of Eden, where humanity was pushed further and further east from God's presence. But in order for the Israelites to experience Yahweh's presence in their midst, they must be holy. Thus the need for Jericho's destruction. And reading Joshua chapter 6, it's an uncomfortable read for many modern Christians and skeptics alike. For apart from Rahab and her family, Jericho is completely annihilated. Every living creature, human and animal alike, are destroyed. Harem or devotion to destruction, is a concept we are unfamiliar and uncomfortable with. But it all relates to Yahweh's justice, justice against sin and evil. And in the lead up to Jericho's demise, we find Joshua near Jericho one day. And as his mighty towers loom over him, he lifts up his eyes and he sees a man with a drawn sword approaching him. The man's intention is obviously hostile. And in response to this threatening situation, naturally Joshua asks, are you a friend or are you a foe? And the man's response, it's unusual, neither. What does that mean? Neither. Whose interests does he represent? It's not human interests. He is the commander of Yahweh's army. While at present he fights for Israel, the implication by holding this sword, Yahweh fighting for Israel is not always guaranteed. For Yahweh's agenda, it's not about national identity. It is about his holiness. The divine warrior, the divine commander represents Yahweh's war. This is Yahweh's war, not humanity. And recognizing the significance of this encounter with this man, Joshua immediately falls down in reverence and worship. And the question he asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? 
The answer is profound. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. And the perceptive reader would see the illusion back to Moses at the burning bush. For there Moses was also told to remove his shoes, for the place where he is standing is holy. And this sets up the idea that the conquest of Jericho, it's all related to Yahweh's holiness and justice. For Joshua must remember this. Holiness and unholiness cannot mix. And it does not matter the source of that unholiness, whether it comes from a Canaanite or an Israelite. It cannot be tolerated. Jericho's destruction is meant to be a preview of what is meant to happen to the entire land as it is transferred from its unholy state into holy perfection. And like the crossing of the Jordan, Jericho stands as this impregnable barrier for the transformation of the land. As chapter 6 verse 1 notes for us, the city is securely barred. Nobody can come in, nobody can come out. Now after escaping from Egypt and spending 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites are not a professional army. They have no siege warfare weapons. They have no ladders. They have no battering rams. In fact, they're lucky to have any sort of proper weapons at all. How on earth is Jericho, this fortified city, meant to be overcome? In the ancient Near East, a city wall was critical for the protection of the city but also symbolise not only this triumph and the success of a king, it symbolises the peace, as the city was a barrier that prevented the chaos from the outside entering in, and the city itself was a place of order and protection. In the ancient Near Eastern battle annuals, victorious kings boasted of their ability to destroy a fortified city. And the goal of boasting about the destruction of the city wall was to warn his enemies who similarly lived in a walled, fortified city that nothing could stop this king. It does not matter how great your city is. It does not matter how high, how wide. I will break through your city. Nothing could stop this victorious king. For a king or a ruler that was able to destroy a city wall was seen as having divine blessing from the gods. And this is exactly why Joshua's fame spreads after victory over Jericho. Yahweh's promise is, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. This implies that Jericho itself must have had some form of a well-equipped army, that their defences were equipped for handling a human army coming in and laying siege to the city. But they're not prepared for Yahweh's power. And rather than going into some form of combat, the Israelite task is rather strange. They are to march around the city for seven Days, while seven priests carry both the Ark of the Covenant and seven trumpets. 
not exactly how you win a war against an impregnable barrier. But it's this reminder, this war is not a human war. It is Yahweh's war. And the fact that the Ark of the Covenant and the priests play a central role in this battle is meant to point the Israelites repeatedly, victory does not rely upon them. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, from verses 1 to 5, Moses declared, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots, a, a large army, an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For Yahweh your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Before you engage in battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the troops and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near to do battle against your enemies. Do not lose heart or be afraid or panic or be in dread of them. For it is Yahweh your God who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Perhaps we've spent too many time studying this account in Sunday school. We lose just the significance of this moment and how impregnable Jericho truly was for the Israelites. But seeing the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant around, reminder, human power and might do not guarantee success. It is having Yahweh on your side. As we noted earlier, the fall of Jericho, it alludes back to the Genesis account, this idea of a new Eden, a new creation, a new place to dwell with God. But commentators also note that this ritual of marching around Jericho, while really odd for us, wasn't actually that strange for the Israelites in light of the meta-narrative of the entire scripture. Now, if we go back to the Torah, particularly at the time of Passover, we'll see that this march actually connects in with the Passover, but it also connects in with the idea of the Jewish celebration of Jubilee. Now, most of us are familiar with the concept of Passover, that it was the, the tenth and final plague against the Egyptians, where the Israelites had to sacrifice that lamb and put its blood over the door in order for the angel of Yahweh to pass over the Israelite firstborn. Now, after the Passover, Yahweh sets apart a seven-day celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is when the Israelites were not supposed to eat bread with yeast for seven days. And they were to do this each year to remind them how quickly they had to flee from Egypt. Now, it was during this first seven-day feast of uneven bread that the Israelites experienced the crossing of the Red Sea and the annihilation of Pharaoh's army. Now, previously in Joshua chapter 5, we learn that the Israelites, when they got into the land, they celebrated the Passover, which was to reiterate the promises made to that first generation on that night, that they would enter into the promised land. And now this generation was experienced the delights that were promised to that Exodus generation so long ago. Thus, it's significant that the destruction of Jericho, it occurs within a seven-day time frame 
in the face of unleavened bread. Once again, this reminder that Yahweh is with the Israelites, overcoming impossible odds and powerful enemies. And the second illusion this march around Jericho points to is the celebration of Jubilee from Leviticus chapter 25. Jubilee happened at the end, at the, occurred at the end of a cycle of seven sabbatical years. And it always fell on the 50th year. And Leviticus chapter 25 specified that those Israelites who had become enslaved to debt, who had become so poor, would have their debts released. Or those who had to sell their family lands in order to pay off a debt would have those family lands restored. And while the timing and nuances of the Jubilee doesn't exactly correlate to what's declared in Leviticus chapter 25, there are a number of illusions that the fall of Jericho is a Jubilee for the Israelites. The fact that the word ram's horns is translated as, which can be translated, which comes from the word your bull, which is a translation of jubilee. The fact that when the jubilee is declared, a trumpet is blown and then property is returned to the original owners. Now, as the descendants of Abraham, the land of Canaan is promised to the Israelites. They may not be the original inhabitants, but they are the original owners. They have the right to possess the land. And it's interesting, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 29, it states that anyone who sells a house in a walled city retains the right of redemption a full year after its sale. During that time, the seller may redeem it. If it is not redeemed before a full year has passed, the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and the buyer's descendants. It is not to be returned in the jubilee. And what that passage is saying is that if you sell your house in a walled city and after a year you don't claim it, you can never get it back. Now, remember, the Israelites have the soul. They, have, they are the original owners of the land. They have the right to this land. And property can only revert back to its owners if it's not in a walled city. Therefore, with Jericho's destruction, the city is no longer walled. It's a declaration. The Israelites now possess the land. With the walls falling down, the land is theirs to take. And when the seven trumpets blow and a great shout from the people erupts, with the walls collapsing as though pushed by the hands of Yahweh himself, Joshua declares, shout for Yahweh has given you the city and the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And then we're told the people devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young 
animal, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And that is the part of the narrative many Christians are deeply uncomfortable with. Young and old, men and women, everyone eradicated. Many have accused that this is endorsing genocide or ethnic cleansing of the Canaanites. I spoke about earlier. This idea of harem is related to Yahweh's justice. And anything that has been declared to be harem is now owned exclusively by Yahweh. It cannot have any other use than being destroyed. Despite the Israelites being gifted the land, the Bible is very clear. Yahweh owns everything. The Israelites merely are tenants in the land. But what we have to remember, Yahweh's ownership doesn't, isn't just limited to land of Canaan. It incorporates the entire planet. And as difficult as this is for many of us to comprehend, as owner of the planet, and thus all humanity, Yahweh has the right to do as he pleases. Some just see the destruction of Jericho as a human sacrifice to a bloodthirsty God. But instead, it is the just and deserved punishment for idolaters, sinners, and those who commit injustice. When Moses spoke about haram or devotion to destruction in Deuteronomy, the sole purpose for it was justice. The reason why Moses orders the Israelites to utterly destroy, show them no mercy, or do not let anything that breathes remain alive in the land is because Moses is acutely aware, if, we, if you do not eradicate this evil, then you will follow their practices and their gods. In his book, Is God a Moral Monster? Paul Copen argues that the sexual depravity and bloodthirsty violence of the Canaanite gods was mirrored in the lives of the Canaanites. Take, for example, Baal, the storm god. It was believed that in order for rain to flow upon the land, Baal needed to have sex with his sister named Anath. And since the land was believed to be fertilised by Baal's semen, it was critical to have ritual, depraved sexual activity in order to encourage Baal to have sex with his sister. And so every time this ritual, depraved sexual practices were performed, the devotees believed the land would be fertilised. And aside from being her brother's lover, Anath was also the goddess of war. And she's often depicted as wearing this necklace of skull, of, made of skulls. And she wades knee-high through blood while holding swords, slaying her enemies apart while body parts and human heads fly all around her. 
Worship of the Canaanite gods was not some personal private religion you kept to yourself. It was played out in real life. It had social consequences. And the Torah describes some of these sexually, some of these perversions, such as the sexual perverse practices, child sacrifices, and numerous other evils. These lights weren't invading some tranquil, peaceful people. It was a depraved and evil place. And if not eradicated, these practices would spread. Haram is not an act of sacrifice to to, um, quench Yahweh's thirst for blood. It is an act of justice to eradicate sin and evil from this world. And at that point in time, Israel are merely his tools in this judgment. The Canaanite conquest, it is divinely sanctioned. In the book of Genesis, when Noah drunkenly gets, gets too drunk and he falls asleep naked and his son Ham witnesses his nakedness, Noah places a curse on Ham's son Canaan that Canaan would be the slave of his son Shem. And Shem would be the fourth, is the forefather of the, of the Israelites. And so what is happening here is in, in the book of Genesis, it sets up the precedent of the Canaanites being a, per, a people group who were cursed for their wickedness and depravity. In Genesis chapter 10, we're presented with a genealogy of Noah's three sons. And Ham, the son that viewed Noah's nakedness, has three sons, Cush, Egypt, and Canaan. All of these were some of the most wicked peoples that the Israelites would encounter. When Yahweh made his covenant with Abraham to be the father of many nations, his core promises that his descendants would own the land of Canaan. However, entrance into the land would be delayed, as Genesis chapter 15, verse 16 notes, in the fourth, and they will come back in the fourth generation. Your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. The implications of these passages back in Genesis, and now we see happening in the book of Joshua, is that the sin of the Amorites, i.e. all the Canaanites, has reached its full measure. And as a holy land, the Israelites are not attacking the land for themselves. They're doing it for the holiness of Yahweh. This isn't an act of genocide or ethnic cleansing. Horem is not discriminatory. You may have noticed when Joshua declares for the people to take out Jericho, he states, he states, do not keep for yourselves the devoted objects, the gold, silver, bronze, and iron. For if you take them, you will bring trouble upon Israel. If the Israelites keep the devoted objects, there will be strife. Joshua chapter 7, which we'll look at next week, it gives us the indication of what that strife looks like. If Haram was truly ethnic cleansing or genocide, then Yahweh would overlook the sins of the Israelites. But he does 
not. And as readers of the former prophets, we know what's going to happen to the Israelites at the end of 2 Kings. They experience their own harem when the Babylonians exile the people from the land. Paul Copan remarks, Yahweh initiated battles were never intended for non-profit, non-P-R-O-P-H-E-T organizations. One did not simply just pick up the sword and attack a nation for no reason. There had to be special revelation from Yahweh. Now, the author, Richard Hess, argues that despite receiving divine authority to drive out the Canaanites, the Israelites never had permission to expand their borders. The Egyptians, the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or every powerful ancient Near Eastern empire, all they wanted to do was conquer the world and expand their borders. The Israelites had their land. They were not permitted to go out and spread it. Every time they fought, it was an act of self-defense. And while the description of the men, young and old, everyone being put to the sword, is confronting and violent, the Bible doesn't relish in this violence. The Bible doesn't promote how graphic it was. The Bible doesn't take pleasure in the deaths of these wicked people. But as off-putting as haram makes us feel, haram does not mean a lack of God's mercy. And as already noted in this account, Rahab and her family are delivered from destruction. The role of the Israelites was to be a blessing upon the entire world. While the slaughter of men, women, children, young and old in a city may not seem like a blessing for those living under the oppression of evil and injustice, the eradication of evil is something to be celebrated. While the evil of Jericho is never recounted in the Bible, it must have been a wicked place. For Joshua, after, after eradicating the city, places a curse upon anyone who seeks to lay its foundations once more with the loss of their oldest son. Anyone who seeks to rebuild its gates will lose their youngest son. And the terrible irony later on in the former prophets in the book of 1 Kings is that in defiance of Joshua's curse, a man they heal of Bethel lays its foundation at the cost of his firstborn and lays its gate at the cost of his youngest son. And sadly, the loss of this man's son was probably the result of a foundation-laying sacrifice offered to pagan gods. The irony is of this account is that the Israelites truly cannot be holy. And as readers, we are acutely aware the Israelites cannot be strong enough or courageous enough to be obedient to Yahweh. So as Christians, what can we apply from the conquest of Jericho? Now, naturally, the destruction of Jericho's walls points to Yahweh's sovereignty, power, and the fulfillment of his promise of the gift of the land. 
But fundamentally, we draw from it about Yahweh's holiness and justice. A popular caricature of God is to depict him as the mean, wrathful, angry God in the Old Testament and the nice, loving, forgiving God in the New Testament as revealed through Jesus. Jesus Christ certainly had compassion, love and care for the vulnerable and needy. He greatly gave out forgiveness to those who sought it. But he was acutely aware of divine justice. And for those that violated the Torah and its commands, he did not hold back with his condemnation. In fact, the New Testament affirms this reality. As Romans 3.23 states, the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to experience harem, destruction for our wickedness. As uncomfortable as the events in Joshua 6 may make us feel, they are simply a preview to the future judgment that will come against the sinful world as depicted in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, Jesus Christ is not pictured as this meek, mild man carrying a lamb on his shoulders. Instead, he is depicted as the king of Yahweh's army, riding on a white horse, leading the heavenly armies out to battle. And in this depiction of Jesus, his blood, his, his clothes are covered in blood. There's a sword coming out of his mouth, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. He comes as a warrior to destroy and annihilate the disobedience. The judgment of Revelation, it depicts a new exodus for God's And if there is a new exodus, then there needs to be a new conquest. In order for God's people to dwell in the new heavens and new earth, there must be an eradication of the old world. In order for there to be rest, sin and evil must be removed. But friends, instead of us experiencing Haram, the atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, which acts as a new Passover, which functions as a new jubilee. For we are now granted a new inheritance, which was cut off from the sin and evil which impact our lives, where we will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. As Christian readers, we must consider Joshua, we must consider the response of the commander to Joshua's question. God's loyalties do not lie in national, political, or social identities. It lies in his holiness. So are you, are you affiliated with the right side? While the collapse of Jericho and the destructions of her citizens is terrifying, It is nothing compared to the day of terror that evildoers will face on the day of judgment. For friends, everything belongs to God and those who are unholy will be devoted to destruction in order for his justice to be manifested. But we know for those that love and trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pass through that justice and judgment. So friends, this morning, after hearing and reading this account of Joshua 6, 
Whose side are you on this morning? Whose interests do you seek to imitate? Are you on the side of Yahweh? Or are you on the side of the Canaanites? Let me pray for us. Lord, as we wrestle with these deep and challenging passages of the violence of Jericho, we recognize that you are sovereign and that you are holy. And that as holy creator, you are a just God. And Lord, we thank you for that justice, that it is perfect. And though we as humans may not understand it, Lord, we just trust in you to restore the wrongs in this world. As we saw in Jericho, it's a foretaste of what is to come on that day of judgment. So for us today, Lord, let us make sure we are on the right side. We are the ones who are following you and not against you. As we learnt that holiness and unholiness cannot mix, and you are not a God who shows favoritism. So it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.